Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. So excited to have on the show this week a basketball aficionado, a basketball coach, and uh, one of my aces. His name is Arya Shirazi. We're going to have him on in just a moment. Um, but to talk to Arya about basketball is truly a treat. And I'm actually doing it just to clear the palate because after that, I've got a lot to say about Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets. So let's get started with Arya Shirazi. Arya Shirazi, thank you so much for being on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we're going to talk some serious NBA. Uh, but before we do, I mean, one of the ways I introduced you is as somebody who ran the New York Marathon, which to me is an athletic feat of unimaginable proportions. Can you just tell the story? Because you're not a marathoner per se, and yet you did this. And that to me is amazing. Can you tell that story, please? Briefly, uh, yes. No, I was not a runner. I have. Ne- I had never been uh, a runner, competitive or uh, meditative, really. And in 2015, I got kind of a, a, a freak opportunity uh, to get a spot without having to go through any of the processes as far as qualifying or running a certain amount of races or volunteering uh, to run the marathon for that year. And kind of the catch was that it was 10 weeks out. Wow. I had 10 weeks to put it together. Uh, uh, so I, I accepted the opportunity and, and everybody I told thought I was crazy because I'm not a runner and thought that there was a good chance that I would uh, either perish or just injure myself pretty badly. Uh, but I, I got to ask, Shiraz, I got to ask, because this yeah. to me is, is kind of amazing. I totally understand why people said to you, you have two and a half months to train for this. You're not a runner. Don't do this. I get where they're coming from. What made you think that you could do it? What had, had done it, Dave, is that being a New Yorker as you are, my whole life, I remember the New York City Marathon taking place. And people literally coming from every corner of the world to run that race. It was part of growing up in the city. And then uh, when my kids were born, I would take them uh, sometimes in their strollers to the foot of the Queensboro Bridge. And we would watch the runners for about half an hour go in. And I remember uh, once or twice people right around us uh, watching a specific runner and relating to that runner and how emotional it was. Uh, I was feeling emotional about it and I didn't even know these people. So the opportunity to see the city I grew up in, my city, uh, in that situation, seeing it through the eyes of uh, the marathon and being able to have a lot of the people who are close to me in my life kind of being able to share it with me at various points along the route uh, is really what motivated me to do it and what, uh, yeah, and, and wound up being a huge highlight. Had you ever run 26 miles before the day of the marathon? No. Uh, the longest run I did, probably about three weeks out, was 20. Mm. Uh, 20 miles encompassing three boroughs. I'm a Queens guy. So it was a 20-mile run that went from Queens to Manhattan, to Brooklyn, and then roundabout to Queens. And I remember in the home stretch being just a few blocks from my house after running for a couple of hours, uh, saying, oh, I feel amazing. 
I was really feeling myself. I was like, I can do this. I feel just as strong now as I did when I started two hours ago. I'm ready. Uh, and what I learned is that those extra six miles are a bitch. Uh, you really feel, uh, I was not feeling uh, as triumphant physically at the end of, of 26 miles as I had been on 20. Uh, it, it's a long time to run uh, and it's a hard run, but, uh, but I, 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 was, I was fairly satisfied with the way I ran overall. Mm. You, you know, there's that old expression, the city is always the same because it's always changing. And what did you learn about New York by running through all five boroughs? That's a great question. Uh, I, I don't really know if I have a profound answer about New York. What I did learn is the energy and the the uh, positivity and enthusiasm of New Yorkers or people who were in New York that day uh, really was a huge, was very, very memorable and very impactful. As I was in the last five, six miles and struggling and my body didn't feel like, uh, like it really wanted to run anymore. Uh, honestly, the encouragement and the cheers from people, uh, you know, on the side uh, really kind of uh, helped to pull me, to pull me through and be able to finish strong, uh, you know, uh, when I was hurting a little. And last question, could you describe the runner's high of doing the 26? And was the high enough for you to want to do it again? Oh, I mean, it was the entire thing was unreal. It starts on the Verrazano, which is the only, which is really the Staten Island aspect, uh, you know, and no more is, is, is necessary for, for Staten Island. But it starts on the Verrazano and you run into Brooklyn. And that's really where, uh, you know, where the race starts. And I remember running down the Verrazano and telling myself, you know, pace yourself, it's a long race. And I was just so unbelievably just spirited and amped that it literally felt like I was flying. And I was aware of what an unbelievable experience it was to be doing it. It was like very, very emotional uh, and very powerful and definitely worth it. Uh, the, you know, all I could think about afterwards was running it again and doing it better. I felt like I knew little ways along the way that I could have, uh, you know, uh, improved. And, but it's a lottery. So I didn't get, I didn't get selected. And then in 2019, my name, my number came up again. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, fairly early in my training, uh, I started to experience like a little bit of like health issues that prevented really the training from getting underway and I deferred and then the next year was the pandemic and that kind of took me out of so it's doubtful uh, you know if that was my one shot at it then then, uh, then I have no regrets it was, mm. it was an unbelievable thing to kind of fluke into and fall into uh, but I definitely in the aftermath uh, it, you know if I had been selected the following year I definitely would have run again uh, yeah. I'm in better shape at that point it just occurred to me, you are the Moonlight Graham of marathon running. I'll take that. Thank you. Thank you. little Field of Dreams reference for folks out there listening. Had appropriate in, in the year of uh, Leota's passing. So Yes, very appropriate so, uh, yeah. in the year of Leota's passing. And, oh, my God, 
All right, best Leota performance. First thing that comes in your head, what do you got? Something wild. Ooh, that's me too. Something wild. Very nice. Uh, what, what's the phrase? Uh, honorable mention for cop. I don't know if you ever saw that with, with I did. Patrick. Very. And good. then again, he is, you know, he is the star of Goodfellas. Yeah, we maybe we should remember films, that. So that actually is kind <laughs> of the, you know. But, uh, As we're ranking Leotas, we might want to point <laughs> yeah. that out. There, there are some cooler answers, but that's that's the correct one. Yes. But, uh, All right. You know. So the Nets, right in your backyard, look like they're going to sign Ime Adoka as their next coach. Do you like that move? You know, I'm I'm probably sound naive, but I'm surprised by it. Only because, I mean, in a way, why not just quadruple down on the nuts? Uh, you know, they have had, you know, they're seven games in or whatever, eight games in. The, the season is still brand new. And, uh, you know, and they've just experienced so much drama and so much kind of, you know, real tabloid stuff that, you know, adding Ime Udoka, who's still, uh, you know, the circumstances behind his suspension from Boston and that. Uh, incredible fall from grace after the run last year. Uh, in, in a way, it's a very ballsy move because you're already the franchise of controversy and you are bringing in certainly the most, the, the coach that comes with the most questions and the most current controversy. Uh, as far, uh, Winning usually quiets a lot of dissent uh, or tends to answer questions. And, uh, you know, Udoka's very small sample size as a head coach is A plus or A plus plus. So, uh, you know, from a, from a coaching and X's and O's standpoint, I have to think Udoka is going to be a tremendous improvement over Steve Nash, whose hiring I never understood beside the fact that he's a Hall of Famer who seems like, you know, kind of a groovy guy. Uh, but, uh, so it, you know, none of the questions really come from his qualifications on the court. It's just, as I said, a little bit surprising that they would choose to pile on uh, uh, what's already, you know, kind of a, a tumultuous early season period for them. Yeah, I mean, tumultuous early season uh, for the whole league. I mean, we could talk about Robert Sarver in this context. Also, are you feel? I, I love watching the NBA, I know you do as well. Are you feeling feeling weighed down at all in terms of your enjoyment by the collective drama that's taken place off the court? Or are you able to segment it off? I don't think I am, Dave, because honestly, the only media that I ever pay any attention to is you. Oh my. So, uh, so, I'm not inundated because I don't choose to, uh, you know, I know the league and I love the league. So I don't, I don't go online to learn anything, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that's, I don't mean that sound conceited. I just. The opposite. It sounds I, you know, amazing. I, 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 I have league pass. So, mm-hmm. so, so I'm able, I, I'm able to see, you know, what I think. I don't usually need to turn, you know, to experts besides yourself to really tell me too much. So, uh, you know, my main contact with the league is actually from is from watching ball, mm. uh, and I'm kind of able to tune the stuff out that I uh, that I choose to. You know, real life is real life. 
And, and I absolutely believe that real life should be a part of sports and part of a sports conversation. But, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by it only to the point that I choose, choose to be. You know, that's right. You said, uh, don't want to sound conceited. That to me sounds more like self-care because there is so much uh, inundation of information about these players' personal lives. And at one point, I'm just like, I don't care if Jonathan Isaac you know, has a subscription to Rush Limbaugh's newsletter. It's like he hasn't been on the court in three years. I right. Don't know if he can do anything. And 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 it go it actually goes. There's so it's complicated, of course. But I also, uh, you know, I'm certainly not a shut up and play guy. No. And, a, and in a way, uh. <laughs> you want to know what you don't want to know, which is, you know, you don't want somebody who you really respect as a ball player, or also you think you respect as a human, you don't really want to hear five things out that are really going to uh, alter and diminish your opinion of that person. But you also, in a way, want to make sure that you're not, I want, I don't want to be blindly cheering for somebody who might have views that that are so opposite of mine in ways that I find important. So it's a very, you know, I'm I'm constantly contradicting myself uh, in saying that a lot of the the stuff that are that's uh, that a lot of the headlines I'm not interested in, but some of them I'm very interested in and go oh, into wow. the big picture of being an NBA fan or a sports fan. Yeah, I will I will echo that absolutely. So I've been wanting to ask you this, who's your MVP so far? Because I think we're going to disagree. You know, uh, Giannis is putting up crazy games every night and winning every game. Luca is putting on unreal numbers and winning sometimes. So, uh, you know, I'd probably... Stay Giannis, but again, I do believe that Luca is the is the greatest talent in the league. He was my pick to win MVP at the beginning of the year, and I think if Dallas wins forty eight games plus uh, and he keeps up this pace, then I think a compelling argument could be made for for Doncic. Uh, then again, Giannis is undeniably a top three player in the league, and if you're the best player on the best team, then you should always be in the conversation. So he's probably the MVP too. Who do you have on your mind? Uh, you just answered it correctly. Um, so I say nothing, but I do have a follow-up question. And by the way, congratulations on giving the right answer, it being right because it's mine. So that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about- I was like, what would Dave want to hear? Okay. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's Giannis, but Luca is very, very, very ascendant. Um, As someone who coaches ball, as someone who played ball, explain to to my listeners and me the phenomenon of Luka Doncic, because let's let's put it on the table. He is not shaped like a typical NBA player. He does not have the ups of a typical NBA player. He is not as fast, I don't think, as a typical NBA player, Maybe, maybe just below average and yet he dominates when he is out there. I mean, dominates as in at the start of this season, they can only compare him to Wilt Chamberlain 
Yeah. Uh, how um, does he do it from a basketball perspective? And is it replicable? Well, I don't know that I would call him a below average athlete. You know, I don't, I, I wouldn't he's either. Not, he, you know, he's speed. not as, he's not a Zach Randolph style athlete, you know, among NBA guards, certainly, uh, you know, he's, I'd, you know, I'd say average, you know, average or so, but beating everyone off the dribble, it's not just guile. He literally beats everyone off the dribble. He has a frame that's able to withstand. I think that's a big part of it. As you said, you know, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's a bit of a chubby kid, which makes him not look like the prototype athlete. But I think that that bulk certainly serves him well, not only as far as rebounding and being able to finish inside, but also sometimes, uh, you know, the defenders that he can't beat off the dribble, he's got a good enough handle that he can kind of uh, body them to enable to get to where he wants to while keeping the dribble with his head up. Uh, Luca to me is the, he's the ultimate I guess like 2022 or 2020, third decade of this uh, century, ball player as the game has evolved, you know, stretch, positionless, three point, not so whatever. He is the guy as the game has become, you know, almost half court is grounds for where you can score from. Once you now cross the half court line, pretty much, you know, it, it, it's game for being able to put up a shot or initiate a play. He's kind of the guy to do that because he's got the uh, he's got the effortless range with a, a really fortunate knack for hitting tough clutch mm -hmm. shots. With as we said, kind of the uh, the mindset of a scoring point guard. So he's a ball handler and a, and a playmaker, if not an outright distributor. And again, has the body and the strength to not only uh, put up triple doubles in the stat sheet, but compensate for going up against very often uh, faster, uh, faster opponents, both on offense or defense. So uh, I told you a couple of years ago, and I knew that it was, uh, uh, that it was a pretty lofty statement that I felt like Luca had the potential to be the best offensive player I'd ever seen. Uh, again, and that is because he seems to have mastered the aspect of what today's game permits. You know, I mean, any argument for great scorers like Jordan and Kobe, and I mean, you know, the greatest scorer, Kareem, uh, or, you know, or Wilt, if they played in a different era, they would have likely adapted and expanded their games as well to be able to do this. So would Jordan and Kobe have become amazing 33-foot jump three-point shooters? Probably, but it was a different, it was a different sure. game. Uh, I, I'm just saying, you know, with the great yeah. scores, I'm not trying to say, well, they couldn't do that. The game, it was a two-point game, and they were the best at the two-point game. Uh, you know, Luca right now, to me, even with Steph as the defending champ, uh, again, uh, Luca is kind of the guy who seems to have mastered uh, all of the offensive possibilities that go into uh, today's game. 
yeah, he, I think his, his secret sauce, his secret weapon is kind of like uh, the slab of beef theory. Like when we were growing up, the best rebounders were not cut and muscled. They were like slabs of beef, Barkley, Malone, Moses yeah. Malone, I mean. Yeah. Carl Malone was really the first of the muscle guys. Right. And along with Michael Cage, but Michael everybody Cage. else was a slab of freaking beef. Yeah. And, 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 and I think there were a lot more three-point plays when we were growing up because they had the capacity to bounce and still get the shot off. You know, muscles are great, but they can also be a little bit brittle on the joints. Yeah. I think Luca, because he's like the last slab of beef, that he's able to do things that other players can't do, particularly you see him bounce off of players and yeah. create space. I don't think he does that with a body that looks like Andrew Wiggins. You know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I, I completely agree. And I think that's a good way to put it. And also just in case I didn't make clear with, with uh, just, I mean, ultimately he is as skilled offensively as anybody. It's not just, you know, this and this and this, he's got unbelievable skills with the basket with the basketball Jokic of course does as well there's never quite been a seven footer like Jokic but because Jokic is seven feet and Luka's six seven Luka can naturally do things move in a certain way and do things with the ball that 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 Jokic can yeah Um, definitely a smoothness to Luka that you would I mean Jokic is all things but I don't know if smooth is the word we would use no I wouldn't uh, it, all right, there's only one correct answer to this, so I really hope you get it right. But what player from when we were growing up would do the best in, this, in the pace and space era, the space and pace era, the non-hand-checking era that we did now, that we live in now? And you're not allowed to name any dream teamers. So I don't want you to be like, well, it would be Jordan, of course. He'd score 50 a game. Forget about that top tier. Think about people who are just really good players when we were growing up who could be superstars in pace and space. Wow, if there's only one right answer, uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to get it. Uh... Well, there are two right answers, but good luck. No, whoever you think. I don't want you to think what would I think. I'm sorry. No, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I would, you know, I would definitely say Kukoc. Mm. Uh, in a way is kind of built for, you know, still the only true 6'11 point guard I've ever seen, uh, you know, and. <laughs> I'm laughing because David Tigabu, uh, producer of Edge of Sports, just texted me one of my two answers. Oh, so he knows it. I can can you tell me who you're actually thinking of so we can discuss that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm looking at players who are like really good who I think might have been out of their mind right now. One of them is Mark Price. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the the shooting ability like people would have had him just chucking threes nonstop and that would have been ugly. And the other is and I'm a wee bit surprised you didn't say this, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. You know, Dave, of course He's the first person who came to my mind, mm-hmm. but I, and, and of course I should have given the forum. Uh, I probably overthought it. Uh, 
you know how you know I'm, how much how I feel about Mahmoud. So I thought that would be too predictable of me. Mm. But absolutely, I think that you picked uh, uh, probably like the two best guys. I think that Price had very much of a Steph Curry type game. You know, Steph, you know, like a notch above in every area but i probably only say that because i haven't seen mark play in 25 years uh yeah. he was an incredible player who i mean who absolutely had i mean had the handle oh. and that crazy range and that quick release yeah he'd be popping 30 30 footers uh so that's a great uh answer and abdul Rauf, i mean i've always felt uh i'm gonna go back to the player i referenced earlier I really think Tony Kukoc and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf are as two skilled players as I've ever seen uh, ever play. And just like possibly the two most poetic players I've ever seen just as far as how they moved on a basketball court and how they moved with the balls. You know, no, we're not talking about career achievements. I think zero all-star appearances between them or maybe one of them nabbed one, but, uh, you know, and, and were neither of them franchise players in the NBA when they were there. Uh, but again, the two most beautiful mm. basketball players I've ever seen play and one at a very slight six, one and the other at a fairly slight six eleven. Uh, I think those that they would be even more tailor-made their skills and their vision would be, uh, would, flourish in today's game even more than they did in the 90s actually i think kukoc is a fantastic answer like just thinking how he would operate not only in a positionless league but in a league where a coach would probably pull him aside and say pass less shoot more right because because of his range right and that would also inflate his statistics and we, we might even remember him differently Oh, I mean, still, you know, obviously he was a huge part of three championships and he got some individual league accolades, but also a guy who, uh, you know, as I as as I've said, had such a varied and almost ahead of his time offensive game and played almost his whole career in the triangle. Yeah. Which had its own, you know, constraints and, uh, you know, and, and philosophies which didn't lend itself to freelancing necessarily uh but i don't understand people who criticize the triangle as long as you have one of the three best shooting guards to ever live it seems to work out great yeah exactly exactly just get one of those (laughs) and the triangle will work just fine um i I know you've been really generous with your time but i do want to ask you this is important um because I, i really do want to get your thoughts on this. What is one team so far? I, I, I feel like it's only been like eight games, but I, I feel like we have a much better idea about these teams now than we did eight games ago. But we also know some teams like the Wizards last year can start 10 and three and then go down the toilet. Yeah. So, which I don't ever want to talk about again. Although there's talking about they're going to raise a banners to the rafters at Capital One Arena that just says 10 and three. To commemorate All right. Well, yeah. Br- bring your camera. When we thought we were good for <laughs> one brief moment. Um, what what team is doing well and that you think has some real legs to it that you did not expect to see 
at the top of their standings right now? Who's doing better than you expected? Well, I, I'm not going to say Cleveland because I really, I was very, very high on them, not only because of the Donovan acquisition, which is huge, I mean, which propels them to a potentially different level, uh, but I love the makeup of Cleveland's team. Uh, and I'm a big J.B. Bickerstaff fan, especially with that team. I thought he did a, a fantastic job mm -hmm. with the revolving door of primary players last year. Uh, and, and I'm very pleased to see them come out of the gate so strong and look like they might uh, 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 sustain somewhat of that level for, uh, for the season. I guess... Toronto and I shouldn't be surprised actually because it, it, it's it's just a strange team and it was a strange team last year and uh, I think Nick Nurse is one of the few coaches who whose team gets a tangible amount of wins every year for the last few years by virtue of being of him being the coach being a Nick uh, Nurse team I totally above agree. above what their talent would necessarily dictate there are a few coaches that I would say uh, their teams lose a few <laughs> games by virtue of them being the coach uh, and and Toronto that they haven't come out crazy. I think they're five and three, but even in their three, I think they've been super competitive in just about every game. And I think the reason that I, I haven't really known what to make of them is because they are so starter heavy. I mean, you know, I mean, it's kind of a known a known that Nick plays the starters like thirty eight plus minutes and then and then you look at the bench and for the most part, you can in a way understand why, even though he also has kind of a uh, a funky, diverse collection of front court players. Uh, you know, I've always, I have a very soft spot for veterans. So, you know, I'm always looking for Thaddeus Young and Otto Porter to have meaningful roles on playoff teams. Uh, but, but their backcourt is, <laughs> their backcourt is really, really thin, you know, uh, really, you know, almost necessitating Trenton Van Vliet playing 40 plus minutes a night. Mm. And Fred is, 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 uh, usually good to miss about 12 to 15 games a year. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, if they're, uh, uh, if the team experiences fatigue from their primary players playing so much, but they have played a number of games. I think they've had a, a like, they played tough teams for the most part coming out of the gate. And, uh, and from what I've seen, uh, they've kind of looked like the more together team on every occasion. You know, Van Fleet is similar to Luca, like a short version of Luca in his ability to use a body that's atypical to create space with a little bit of bounce. So that's uh, another person on our all slab of beef team. Absolutely. Putting together. So who, and then I got to ask you the, 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 the converse of that question. Like what is the team that you thought, and let's keep Brooklyn out of the conversation, but the team that you thought, wow, this team is, is, is a first-tier title contender, and now having watched them, no matter what their record is, but having watched them, you're, you're like, yeah, I overvalued that a little bit. My pick to win the finals this year was Philly. I actually think top to bottom, uh, and I, I watch a lot of Sixer basketball. So 
uh, I just felt like it wasn't just the stars. It wasn't just the MVP candidate. And, you know, can he coexist with Harden? I love their roster. I think they have an unbelievable top two, an unbelievable top four. And then I like their bench and kind of the depth and uh, diversity of contributions that I think their bench can bring. Uh, a criticism I've had of Doc Rivers since he's been uh, in Philly is I haven't loved the way that he's coached his his team or the way he uses his players. And obviously he sees them in practice every day. I just see them on game time when, when he's coaching them. But maybe I just have a higher opinion for the ceiling of certain players like Shake Milton and Mon and uh, Matisse Thibel and even Korkmaz and haven't liked uh, Doc's uh, inconsistent degrees of faith in them as true rotation uh, mainstays. So it isn't just, uh, I still believe that if they're able to put it together, well, as I said, we're under 10 games. Sixers are still my team, uh, my team to win it all. Uh, I'd have to say that uh, the Mavs right now, uh, obviously their bench and their players surrounding Don Chich have been uh, criticized. And I felt as though he was so transcendent and uh, and that a few players would really step up to make that team, if not a championship contender, one that would contend for the top couple of seeds in the West. Again, I think they're 500 or maybe even a game above. So it's not like they're like they're looking horrible, but uh, but I, I, I'm not having great faith in. Uh, in the the disparate parts' ability to really maximize their talents around Luca, uh, I do think that if uh, if Jason Kidd does figure it out, uh, which really hasn't been his forte as a coach, figuring things out, uh, that uh, that they could still have a very high ceiling. But they have not played; they have not looked inspired to me. Uh, in the early going, in my opinion, of where they could potentially go. Uh, I don't have the confidence that I did a couple of weeks ago. Look, Davis Bertans is a basketball succubus. Yeah, yeah, you're not a Davis fan. And I don't even think he's suited up. He's been in a silk shirt every time I've, uh, uh, every time I've seen. So I don't know if that's going to be his year-long condition or if eventually he's going he's gonna to get on the floor. But Only listen, you know, at the... This was such a, this was a hard year to forecast and it was kind of fun. There were no visible front runners to me. I felt, uh, you know, as training camp wound down, I felt as though there were legitimately five or six teams in each conference that could finish with the top record in that conference. And there were equally, uh, compelling reasons to not believe for 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 most of those teams also why they wouldn't live up to uh to what they could be uh and 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 I think that so far the very early going has kind of indicated that has kind of borne that out obviously Milwaukee and Phoenix right now kind of look like the two strongest and if they wind up being 
the two strongest all year, that won't be a mystery. That won't be uh, that won't that won't be strange. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's also been typically both in teams getting off to confoundingly slow starts and also teams which have appeared much stronger in the early going. I think that that's kind of uh, uh, that's kind of how I felt that the season might shake up because a lot of teams had mm-hmm. high ceilings to me and a lot of teams could also kind of plummet early. Well, this is why I'm going to be looking at the Jazz and the Spurs all year, uh, the two surprise teams, because both were thought to be in the Wemby, Victor Wembanyama? Wemby. Wemby. We're thought to be tanking for Wemby. Um, And Wemby does look like a generational player. But the one thing you can't predict is if a young guy is going to make the leap when given the opportunity. And Keldon Johnson and Devin Vassell and uh, uh, Laurie Markkinen, who's in, playing inspired ball, and Colin Sexton, those are two players on each team who are showing all-star ability. I'm not saying they're going to make the all-star team, but they're playing at such a high level, it could ruin the, the, the tank. First, uh, well, first of all, my overstatement. Antonio surprises me even more. And okay. Pop should never surprise me, but I really thought the Spurs had one of the two weakest rosters in the league. And when Keldon, who is terrific, but when Keldon is far and away your best player mm-hmm. going into a season, uh, you're a serious contender for the worst team in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they have... Uh, their record is whatever it is, but they have, except they lost by 40, I think, last night. But before that, uh, you know, we're beating teams who on paper should have wrapped it up by halftime. And that's a testament to Pop, but also, as you said, to uh, the potential of untapped young players and also their motivation in, in getting minutes and making a name for themselves and also, you know, buying into Popovich's message. Utah, actually, as I said, I love veterans and Utah with their spare parts actually had themselves a veteran squad. I was looking at that team and I'm saying Conley, Clarkson, Beasley, Markinen, Sexton, Olinick, Rudy Gay. Okay. Jared Vanderbilt. All right. None of them all stars. But that's not the Thunders roster. That's not the Pacers roster. Mm-hmm. That's not the Spurs roster. And I and actually, and as as I saw some predictions having them bottom three in the league, I think I even saw somebody saying they'd be the worst. Uh, you know, I was saying this is a team that I think just has a lot of smart, talented players uh, that if they play together, aren't going to beat themselves. And in the early going, they're not. And I'm really glad to see that because uh, uh, because uh, I like players who have established themselves in the league, continuing to get minutes they deserve and being put in winning situations. Regardless, Danny is going to sell this team off piece by piece this year. Mm-hmm. The ceiling for what you, I don't think he's interested in having a scrappy play-in team. Mm, he, no wants, he wants to play for Wemby. Mm-hmm. So 
these players who are playing big roles in this really feel-good start for Utah, unfortunately, I don't think are going to be around. As I said, I think the fire sale is already on, and we're going to start seeing players moved uh, as soon as Danny gets value he wants for them. And I think that that ultimately is going to prevent them from kind of playing it out to fruition and being a team that that has the ability to knock off or at least put a scare into teams with uh, much higher name, uh, uh, bigger names and higher payrolls. But, uh, but, uh, but San Antonio absolutely surprises me more than Utah only because uh, they're playing at such a talent deficit. Yeah. They have, beat, no. they have beaten Minnesota two out of three times this year. And uh, and I think that's embarrassing for Chris Finch and the Wolves with their yeah. squad and what they can put out there to go. I mean, Ooh. you lost the first game, so that means now you know how they beat you. Don't let that happen again. And they let it happen again. And this is a team who aspires to uh, uh, to be in the upper echelon in the West and who I really want to believe in as well. So I think that's just a testament to uh, – to unselfish, intelligent basketball. Yeah, my answer to that question, though, the one before about what team did you expect more of that you're actually worried about as is actually the T-Wolves. I mean, their spacing on offense is so bad, and they actually play much better on offense when Rudy's sitting down, Rudy Gobert. For sure, sure. obvious. And they, but then their defense is terrible when Rudy's sitting down. And when they play them together it gets really clunky. I thought it was interesting that Anthony Edwards, you know, he hasn't had a dunk yet this year, unless he had one last night. That's an amazing statistic. But as of no, that as of this project, doesn't have a dunk. And, and he was asked why, and he said there are too many people in the lane, which is a little odd. I'm not thinking, uh, I think ultimately that is not going to be a deciding factor in holding them back. I think uh, Finch should absolutely find a way for Gobert to get out of town's way on offense. I do not think that they need to run into each other or be occupying the same space. And Gobert uh, adds so much defensively, uh, clearly, but, but the numbers are proving that, that I think that that is actually I don't I, I, I don't think that their twin towers is what's ultimately going to uh, imperil them if they do get imperiled. I, I watch almost as much Wolves as I do Sixers and almost every play starts with an entry pass to Edwards. Mm. Almost every play. And I'm not saying Edwards isn't one of the great young players and might be a many, many time all star maybe it's starting as early as this year. I believe in Edwards and his future. Right now, your best player is Towns. Your toughest matchup is Towns. That is your huge, and there are three, four possessions in a row where Call does not touch the ball. Mm. And that to me is, 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 is criminal, and Towns isn't somebody who can always rise above that. And you probably heard that Anthony Edwards showed up to training camp uh, not in the best of shape. Didn't do a lot of off-season training. And it's gotten to the point where uh, it's a back and forth between him and the local media. 
about what, what his weight is at that point, which is kind of weird. But th there's, I don't know, man, I hear what you're saying, but I, I feel, I've, I've got, a, I've got some bad mojo around that club. Let me last, last question for you. Last question. Uh, Mike Conley for D'Angelo Russell, who says no? I do. <laughs> uh, Minnesota <laughs> absolutely says no, I think. Uh, D'Lo has not been the D'Lo of the that, Nets. Of the Nets, who, yeah. who so on cool. any given day is the <laughs> dominant player in a game. Yeah. Truly, truly an unguardable player when he's on, which unfortunately for his various employers hasn't been nearly as often as they would like. But a guy that when it is his night looks like he's the best player in the league. Uh, he has not, those have been far fewer in Minnesota. I have not thought that, uh, that Finch has found the way to maximize what Russell can bring. But I don't know that Conley makes you, brings you to the finals this year in a way that D'Lo won't. Mm. And I think that you're, that, on a game-to-game -game basis, Russell is a bigger difference maker than Conley. And if you're thinking beyond this year, which you should be, uh, you definitely don't cash in. I know they didn't extend Russell uh, yet, but uh, I think the I think Russell has so much good ball ahead of him. Conley is in his last stages as a starting uh, above-average point guard, but I still don't think moves the needle enough to make the, to make that deal. If I was the Wolves, I don't do it. If I'm the Jazz, I do. Yeah, I mean the one slight counter argument I'll do is just that uh, locker room presence for a team that apparently really needs one in Conley, and also you. you okay, you, well that's very valid. That's very you valid. You expressed yeah. your frustration about Cat not getting the ball five or six times. You know, if Conley was running that point, that wouldn't happen. So I just contradicted myself. No, no, I, no. I'm, I'm actually think you nope. are more correct than I am. Uh, if, if you want to project, uh, I don't think Mike has. I don't think he's good enough anymore. Yeah, no, I think that's the more correct argument. Yeah, I'm just saying, like maybe Mike two I, years I, ago might make people a little Conley curious in Minnesota. Oh sure, no, Conley's a great guy to have on a team and on the court. He's not just in Sage mode yet, but I'm not. I, I. I'm seeing, I don't see Mike being more than like a 13 and five guy anymore. And maybe for Minnesota, that's exactly what you need. But yeah. as I said, if you're not getting that champion, if he's not your championship piece this year, I wouldn't count on Mike Conley even beyond next year. To me, he's on a year to year basis as far as being a starting point guard who can play 30 minutes a night. All right, that's that's uh, word boogie on that. Uh, I wanted to just end by asking you what I ask every guest on the show about music. There's a guitar behind you. I don't know if it gets played as much as you'd like it to get played. I don't know. The Anthony, maybe you could tell us what that guitar means to the Shirazi family. But we're also, a, let we're, us we're a we're a musical family, man. You know, like you know, we, we run on. We run on the rhythms, you know, and, and you, you know, you've been here, it's close quarters, and we usually try to fill it with, uh, you know, with the soundtrack. So, so, what's so at on any the time, there might be any number of musical instruments being put into effect. What's on the soundtrack then? 
Uh, oh, I mean, you know, it, it, it really could be, you know, could be just about just about anything. Right now, we're kind of all, you know, currently back in, in a Lords of the Underground phase, moving, oh. back, moving, you know, moving back to 95, you know, try, trying to get these kids to understand the meaning of true history. So, oh, you know, man. So, so, so we bounce around all the time, but this is the week of the Lords. Oh, that gets me right here. Um, well, thanks so much for joining us, buddy. I, I really- uh, It's been a blast, guys. Thank you very much for thinking of me. All right, we'll be back right after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on Edge of Sports. Look... One of the reasons why I did that conversation with uh, basketball coach Arya Shirazi is partly because I just really like talking about the NBA with him. But one of the reasons also is to kind of cleanse the palate before I wade into Kyrie Irving and the fraught history of our collective liberation. Okay, look, thanks to Jeff Bezos, Kyrie Irving is using his giant NBA platform to promote a movie available on Amazon that luxuriates in the heat of anti-Semitism like Steve Bannon at a cross burning. The film Hebrews to Negroes promotes the idea that the Holocaust, which affected my family intimately, was a lie. It promotes the idea of a link between us modern Jews and Satan worship. It includes quotes attributed to Adolf Hitler about how fraudulent modern Jews are. We aren't real Jews. We are apparently instead focused on world domination. And for what it's worth, I've never understood why if Jews are set on world domination, I've never been invited to any of the meetings. To be clear, I've always advocated that athletes should feel free to use their platform to talk about whatever they like. I've written in staunch defense of Maya Moore and Colin Kaepernick and all athletes who do more than just shut up and play. But that doesn't mean I or any of us should just applaud every time an athlete has something to say about life outside the lines. That would be patronizing and deeply condescending. We should take an athlete's ideas seriously enough to question and challenge them if we disagree, especially if they promote hate. Irving is not a wayward teen who needs to be protected and defended by not only his legions of followers, but also those dizzy with the romanticism of an athlete speaking out. He is a fully grown and exceptionally wealthy man who has made the journey from COVID denialism to posting a video by racist anti-Semitic child massacre aficionado Alex Jones to now promoting more lies that aim to divide and demonize. Despite efforts to be coy, Kyrie knows exactly what he's doing. He knows his ideas are actually threats and doesn't seem bothered by this. As he said in his disturbing press conference two Saturdays back, I'm only going to get stronger because I'm not alone. I have a whole army around me. If these views sound familiar, 
Real Jews and Fake Jews, Global Domination, Holocaust Denialism, the work of Alex Jones. It's because they're being widely propagated or hinted at by white supremacists and the right wing of the Republican Party. Similar ideas have recently been expressed by Donald Trump, Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, and fascist lawyer for hire Jenna Ellis. And that's what disturbs me the most about Kyrie, Yay, and the ways that these ideas are finding shallow purchase among a thin layer of black celebrities and athletes. This is a fraught and tense time, and there is a fraught and tense historical relationship between black and Jewish people that demands serious and honest discussion. There is a history of Jewish radicals in the 1930s organizing against racism in northern cities and farmlands of the Jim Crow South. There is history of black people wholeheartedly fighting against fascism, from volunteering for the Spanish Civil War to spilling blood in World War II, a war thought to be against the kinds of white supremacist politics represented by Hitler and the Nazi Party. There is a tradition of Jewish participation and martyrdom in the black freedom struggle of the 1950s and 60s. Yet there is also another history. It's a history from earlier last century of Jewish small business owners in black areas of cities around the country. The moneyed class and white Christian supremacists had few roots in urban black neighborhoods, but Jews, the former residents of these same quote-unquote ghettos before migrating out as the Irish did before them, owned shops and small businesses, meaning that the face of economic power and authority was often a Jewish one. Even if that power was not the actual power wielded by industrialists and racist politicians, it became a part of black politics that Jews were responsible for the burdens of racism in black life. These ideas were prominent enough that there is no black leader, no black leader who hasn't been confronted with the question of where Jews fit in the struggle for black liberation. Malcolm wrestled with it, Martin wrestled with it. It is a confounding question. And understandably so, because of the historical imbalance in the relationship between Jewish and black communities. But that's also why for over a century, anti-Semitism has been referred to as the socialism of fools. It can come from a place of hating exploitation and oppression, but when it comes to knowing your enemy, the word Jews becomes a stand-in for exploiters. This is no different from many racial, ethnic, and immigrant groups in a country whose workers have historically, with grand, widely celebrated exceptions, been stubbornly resistant to class struggle. Instead of challenging ingrained issues of race and class that run deeply in the marrow of this rancid economic system, we point fingers at each other, divided and conquered. Let's take the music industry, a deeply parasitic and exploitative business. Generations of black performers were bled dry by this sordid business. But that's not because there was a cabal of secret Jewish executives. It's because the music industry itself is exploitative and racist, no matter who is in the seat of power. Or take the media, allegedly controlled by Jews. That would be news to Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan, his unabashedly racist son. Last I heard, their name wasn't Murdochowitz. It is further confused by fissures in the Jewish community. There are many liberal Jews who are for social justice, who marched in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, and who overwhelmingly vote Democrat. There are also a growing number of leftist Jews 
who would stand for the liberation of Palestine before they would ever make excuses or justifications for the actions of the Israeli state. Then there are the hardcore Zionist Jews, beloved by Trump, Ellis, and friends, because they are the quote-unquote real Jews, a trope that dehumanizes and endangers all of us. These Jews have traded rabid support for Israel in return for a blind eye and near silence when the GOP and its allies crank up the anti-Semitism. So who among Jews is friend and who is foe in the fight against oppression? Depends on what Jew you are talking to. There is no united Jewish thought or Jewish cabal. If there were, we'd only argue among ourselves. What terrifies me about the current moment is that Kyrie's politics are migrating and finding a sick alliance among Nazis, fascists, nationalists, and all manner of white supremacists who have long promoted these notions but wanted no part of black politics unless it was about expressing common separatist ideas. It certainly never manifested into solidarity until now. This has expressed itself in the pro-Kanye social media posts by the GOP and that right-wing billionaire child of apartheid Elon Musk. This expressed itself in a white Nazi rally in Brentwood, California, which promoted solidarity for Ye's anti-Semitic rants. Then over the weekend, the message, Kanye is right about the Jews, was projected on the outside of one of the end zones at the Georgia-Florida football game. This is also the case with Steve Bannon championing right-wing black candidates as long as they call for confrontation against his shared enemies. It's ugly, cynical, and racist, and extremely dangerous. Kyrie's film of choice wants people to wake up, but he's just perpetuating a nightmare of division and helplessness. We all need to wake up, but we need to wake up to the fact that the same GOP politicians courting anti-Semites like Ye are also using unprecedentedly racist primist area ads which endanger the entire black community. Jews and all of us need to do more to speak out against that and the racism that assails black life every day. Jews also need to wake up to the idea that silent right-wingers like Representative Lee Zeldin and Ambassador David Friedman will sooner support white supremacists and Christo-fascists than their own community, as long as their friends on the far right support Israel. The fact that their buddies support Israel only because they think a united Israel is a precursor to an end time when all Jews go to hell is never a part of their political calculation. They would rather risk providing support to those who would spur on murderous attacks in our places of worship than link arms with their fellow reform-oriented Jews under attack. Let's all pledge to wake up and learn from the past, but to not be shackled by it. A system that feeds upon division is the problem. The only people who benefit from division are the mega-rich and powerful who come in all religions, frolicking on yachts while the world quite literally burns. The Christo-fascists won't stop with Jews. They'll just be names to check off on a list on their way to other targets. We will either be united in fear, or we will be united against a common enemy. Now, I'm not sure what the future holds, but I don't think it holds much else. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Arya Shirazi for joining us. Thank you to David Tigabu, the producer of this podcast. For everybody out there listening, get your flu shot and stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.